Section 14 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland Volume 1 From the Beginning Until the Death of Alexander I, 1825 by Shimon Dubnov Translated by Israel Friedlander This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea Chapter 6 The Inner Life of Polish Jewry During the Period of Decline Part 3 5. The Rise of Hasidism and Israel Baal Shem Tov Frankism proved the grave of Sabbatianism by turning its dreamy mysticism into mystification and its lofty messianism into the selfish desire to escape Jewish suffering through disloyalty to Judaism. It was a grossly negative materialistic movement which disregarded the noblest strivings and the most genuine longings of the Jewish soul. The need for a deepened religious consciousness, which the formalities of rabbinism had failed to satisfy, remained as alive as ever among the Jewish masses. This need was bound to give rise to a positive religious movement, which was in harmony with the traditional ideas of the Jewish people. In the spiritual life of Polish Jewry, the distinction between its two ethnographic groups, the Northwestern, the Lithuanian and White Russian, and the Southwestern, the Polish and Ukrainian, became more and more accentuated. In the Northwest, rabbinic scholasticism reigned supreme, and the caste of scholars, petrified in the ideals of Talmudic Babylonia, was the determining factor in public life. Talmudic scholarship, remarks a contemporary Lithuanian Jew, the subsequently famous philosopher Solomon Maimon, constitutes the principal object of education among us. Wealth, physical attractions or endowments of any kind, though appreciated by the people, do not in its estimation compare with the dignity of a good Talmudist. The Talmudist has the first claim on all offices and honorary posts in the community. Whenever he appears at an assembly, all rise before him and conduct him to the foremost place. He is the confidant, the counselor, the legislator, and the judge of the plain man. Matters, however, were different in Podolia, Galicia, and Volhynia, and in the whole southwestern region in general. Here, the Jewish masses were much further removed from the sources of rabbinic learning, having emancipated themselves from the influence of the Talmudic scholar. While in Lithuania, dry book learning was inseparable from a godly life, in Podolia and Volhynia, it failed to satisfy the religious cravings of the common man. The latter was in need of beliefs, easier of understanding and making an appeal to the heart rather than to the mind. He found these beliefs in the Kabbalah, in mystic and messianic doctrines, in Sabbatianism. He even let himself be carried away by teachings which ultimately proved heterodox and subversive of the spirit of Judaism. With the downfall of secret Sabbatianism, which had been utterly compromised by the Frankists, 
disappeared the last will of the wisp of messianism which had beckoned to the groping Jewish masses. It was necessary to fill the mental void thus created and provide new food for the unsatisfied religious longings. This task was undertaken by the new Hasidism, doctrine of piety, originated by Beshit, a product of obscure Podolian Jewry. Israel Baal Shem Tov, in abbreviated form Beshit, was born about 1700 on the borderline of Podolia and Wallachia of a poor Jewish family. Having lost his parents at an early age, he was cared for by some charitable townsmen of his who sent him to a Jewish school or a heder to study the Talmud. The heder learning did not attract the boy, endowed as he was with an impressionable and dreamy disposition. Israel frequently played the truant and was more than once discovered in the neighboring forest lost in thoughts. The boy was finally given up as a bad case and expelled from school. At the age of twelve, Israel, confronted by the necessity of earning a livelihood, became a behelfer, an assistant teacher, and a little later obtained the post of a synagogue beadle. In his new dignity, Beshit conducted himself rather oddly. In daytime he slept, or pretended to sleep, but at night, when all alone in the synagogue, he prayed fervently or read soul-saving books. Those around him looked upon him as an eccentric or maniac. He nevertheless persisted in his course. He delved more and more deeply in the mysteries of the practical Kabbalah, studied the Ari manuscript, which were circulated from hand to hand, and acquainted himself with the art of performing miracles by means of Kabbalistic incantations. When, about twenty years of age, Israel settled in Brody, one of the principal cities of Galicia, and married the sister of the well-known rabbi and Kabbalist of the town, Gershon Kutovo. Kutovo at first tried to interest his brother-in-law in the study of the Talmud, but finding him entirely indifferent to this kind of mental occupation, the proud rabbi, abashed by his relationship with such an ignoramus, advised Israel to leave Brody. Beshit followed the advice and removed with his wife to a village between the towns of Kuti and Kosovo. He frequently retired to the neighboring Carpathian mountains, where, in strict solitude, he fasted, prayed, and lost himself in religious speculation. He eked out an existence for himself and his wife by digging clay in the mountains which his wife carried into the city for sale. According to the Hasidic legend, Israel Beshit led this kind of life for seven years. It was a period of preparation for his subsequent calling. At the end of his mystical exploits in the Carpathian Mountains, Beshit lived in the Galician town of Tulusta, where he occupied minor ecclesiastic positions, acting in succession as Melamed, Shohet and cantor of a synagogue. He was universally regarded as an ignoramus, no one being aware of his innermost cravings. At last, after reaching the age of 36, Beshit decided, by inspiration from above, 
as the Hasidim believe, that the time had come to reveal himself to the world. He began to practice as Baal Shem, i.e., as a magician and Kabbalist, and to cure diseases by means of sacred incantations, amulets, kameot, and medicinal herbs. The figure of a wandering Baal Shem was not unusual among the Polish Jews of the time, and Beshit chose this career, for it subsequently proved a convenient medium for his religious propaganda. He traveled about the towns and villages of Volhynia and Podolia, curing with his herbs and incantations not only Jews, but also peasants and even pans, who had great faith in magic remedies. He won the reputation of a miracle worker and was nicknamed the Good Baal Shem, in Hebrew, Baal Shem Tov. The Jewish masses felt that he was not the ordinary type of conjurer, but a man of righteousness and saintliness. Beshit was frequently called upon to foretell the future, and opening at random the Zohar before him, made predictions as suggested by the Holy Book. In curing the sick, he resorted not only to herbs and incantations, but also to prayer. While praying, he often fell into ecstasy and gesticulated violently. Beshit became the favorite of the masses. Warm-hearted and simple in disposition, he managed to get close to the people and find out their spiritual wants. Originally a healer of the body, he imperceptibly grew to be a teacher of religion. He taught that the true salvation lies not in Talmudic learning, but in wholehearted devotion to God, in unsophisticated faith and fervent prayer. When he encountered men of learning, Beshit endeavored to convince them of the correctness of his views by arguments from the Kabbalah, but he did not recognize that ascetic form of Kabbalah which enjoined upon the Jew to foster a mournful frame of mind, to kill the flesh, and to strive after the expiation of sin in order to accelerate the coming of the Messiah. He rather had in mind that Kabbalah, which seeks to establish an intimate communion between man and God, cheering the human soul by the belief in the goodness of God, encouraging and comforting the poor, the persecuted and the suffering. Beshit preached that the plain man, imbued with naive faith and able to pray fervently and wholeheartedly, was dearer and nearer to God than the learned formalist spending his whole life in the study of the Talmud. Not to speculate in religious matters, but to believe blindly and devotedly, such was the motto of Beshit. This simplified formula of Judaism appealed to the Jewish masses and to those democratically inclined scholars who were satisfied neither with rabbinic scholasticism nor with the ascetic Kabbalah of the school of Ari. About 1740, Beshit chose for his permanent residence the small Podolian town of Metzibos. The role of sorcerer and miracle worker gradually moved to the background, and Beshit emerged as a full-fledged teacher of religion. He played himself at the head of his large circle of disciples and followers, who were initiated by him into the mysteries of the new doctrine, 
not by way of systematic exposition, but rather in the form of sayings and parables. These sayings have been preserved by his nearest disciples, Beshit himself having left nothing in writing. Two ideas lie at the bottom of the doctrine of piety, or the Hasidism, of Beshit. The idea of pantheism, of the omnipresence of God, and the idea of the interaction of the lower and upper worlds. The former may be approximately defined by the following utterance of Beshit. It is necessary for man constantly to bear in mind that God is with him always and everywhere, that he is, so to speak, the finest kind of matter, which is poured out everywhere, that he is the master of all that happens in the universe. Let man realize that when he looks at things material, he beholds in reality the divine countenance, which is present everywhere. Keeping this in mind, man will find it possible to serve the Lord at all times, even in trifles. The second fundamental idea is borrowed from the Kabbalah and signifies that there is a constant interaction between the world of the divine and the human world, so that not only does the deity influence human actions, but the latter exerts a similar influence on the will and the disposition of the deity. The further elements of the Beshit doctrine follow logically from these premises. Communion with God is and must be the principal endeavor of every truly religious man. This communion may be attained by concentrating one's thoughts upon God and attributing to Him all happenings in life. The essence of faith lies in the emotions, not in the intellect. The more profound the emotions, the nearer man is to God. Prayer is the most important medium through which man can attain communion with God. To render this communion perfect, prayer must be ecstatic and fervent, so that he who prays may, as it were, throw off his material film. To attain to this ecstatic condition, recourse may be had to mechanical contrivances such as violent motions of the body, shouts, shaking, and so on. The study of Jewish religious legislation is of secondary importance and is useful only when it succeeds in arousing an exalted religious disposition. From this point of view, the reading of ethical books is preferable to the study of Talmudic history and rabbinical folios. Contrary to the fundamental precept of the practical Kabbalah, Beshitz insists that excessive fasting, the killing of the flesh, and ascetic exercises in general are injurious and sinful, and that a lively and cheerful disposition is more acceptable to God. What is most important in religion is the frame of mind, and not the external ceremonies. Excessive minuteness of religious observance is harmful. The pious, or Hasid, should serve God not only by observing the established ceremonies, but also in his everyday affairs and even in his thoughts. By means of constant spiritual communion with God, men may attain to the gift of clairvoyance, prophecy, and miracle working. The righteous, or Tzaddik, is he 
who lives up to the precepts of Hasidism in the highest measure attainable, and is on account of it nearer and dearer to God than anyone else. The function of the tzaddik is to serve as mediator between God and the common people. The tzaddik enables man to attain to perfect purity of soul and to every earthly and heavenly blessing. The tzaddik ought to be revered and looked up to as God's messenger and favorite. In this way, the doctrine preached by Beshit undermined not only scholastic and ceremonial rabbinism, but also the ascetic Kabbalah, emphasizing in their state the principle of blind faith in providence, of fervent and inspiring prayer, and last but not least, the dogma of attaining salvation through the medium of the miracle-working tzaddik. The last-mentioned article of faith was of immense consequence for the further development of Hasidism, and subsequently overshadowed the cardinal principles of the new movement. As a matter of fact, the personality of Beshit as the first tzaddik impressed the people far more than his doctrine, which could be fully grasped only by his nearest associates and disciples. Among these, the following were particularly prominent. Jacob Joseph Cohen, who occupied the post of rabbi successively in Shagorod, Niemirov, and Polonoye, Bear of Mezalich, a Volinian preacher and Kabbalist, Naman of Horodno, Naman of Kosovo, Phineas of Kretz, all of whom frequently visited Beshit in Mezibos. Even the former rabbi of Brody, Gershon Kutovo, who had once looked down on his brother-in-law as an Amharetz, acknowledged his religious mission. About 1750, Beshit sent to his brother-in-law Kutovo, who had in the meantime settled in the Holy Land, a kind of prophetic manifesto, telling of his miraculous vision or revelation. In it, Beshit asserted that on the day of Jewish New Year, his soul had been lifted up to heaven, where he beheld the Messiah and many souls of the dead. In reply to the petition of Beshit, Let me know, my master, when thou wilt appear on earth, the Messiah said, This shall be a sign unto thee, when thy doctrine shall become known, and the fountains of thy wisdom shall be poured forth, when all other men shall have the power of performing the same mysteries as thyself, then shall disappear all the hosts of impurity, and the time of great favor and salvation shall arrive. Revelations of this kind were greatly in vogue at the time, and had a profound effect upon mystically inclined minds. The notion spread that Beshit was in contact with the prophet Elijah, and that his teacher was the biblical seer Ahijah of Shiloh. As far as the common people are concerned, they believed in Beshit as a miracle worker and loved him as a religious teacher who made no distinction between the educated and the ordinary Jew. The scholars and Kabbalists were fascinated by his wise discourses and parables in which the most abstract tenets of Kabbalah were concretely illustrated, reduced to popular language, and applied to the experience of everyday life. Beshit's circle in Mezbos grew constantly in number. Shortly before his death, 
Besht witnessed the agitation conducted by the Frankists in Podolia and their subsequent wholesale baptism. The Polish rabbis rejoiced in the conversion of the sectarians to the Catholicism, since it read the Jewish people of dangerous heretics. But when Besht learned of the fact, he exclaimed, I heard the Lord cry and say, As long as diseased limb is joined to the body, there is hope that it may be cured in time, but when it has been cut off, it is lost forever. There is reason to believe that Beshit was one of the rabbis who had been invited to participate in the Frankish disputation in Lemberg in 1759. In the spring of the following year, Beshit breathed his last, surrounded by his disciples. 6. The Hasidic Propaganda and the Growth of Tzadikism At the time of Beshit's death, his doctrine had gained a considerable number of adherents in Podolia, Galicia, and Volhynia, who assumed the name of Hasidim. But the systematic propaganda of Hasidism began only after the death of Beshit and was carried on by his successors and apostles. His first successor was the preacher Baer of Mezerich, referred to previously, under whom the little town of Mezerich became the headquarters of Hasidism in Volhynia, just as Mezibot had been in Podolia. In point of originality and depth of sentiment, Baer was vastly inferior to his master, but he surpassed him in erudition. His scholarship ensured the success of the Hasidic propaganda among the learned class and also enabled him to become one of the main exponents of the theory of Hasidism. In the course of 12 years, 1760-1772, Baer managed to surround himself with a large number of prominent Talmudists who had become enthusiastic converts to Hasidism. Some of them came from arch-Rabbinical Lithuania and White Russia. Baer developed the doctrine of Beshit, laying particular stress upon the principle of Tzadikism. He trained a step of apostles, who eventually became the founders of the Tzadik dynasties in various parts of Poland and Lithuania. Tzadikism served as a bait for the common people, who, instead of a rational belief in certain religious truths, preferred to put their blind faith in the human exponents of these truths in the tzaddiks. The same tendency characterized the activity of another apostle of Beshit, Jacob Joseph Cohen, who paid for his devotion to Hasidism by having to endure the persecutions of his rabbinical colleagues. Having lost the post of rabbi in Shagorod, Cohen, with the aid of Beshit, accepted the position of preacher in Niemirov, and, after the death of his master, acted as preacher in Polonoye. Everywhere he was zealously engaged in propagating the Hasidic doctrine by means of the spoken and written word. Jacob Joseph Cohen was the first to attempt a literary exposition of the fundamental principles of Hasidism. In 1780, he published a collection of sermons under the title Toldos Yaakov Yosef, reproducing numerous sayings which he had heard from the lips of Beshit. 
while exalting the importance of the tzaddiks, who were solicitous about the salvation of the common people, Jacob Joseph bitterly assails the arrogant Talmudist or pseudo-scholars, whose whole religion is limited to book-learning, and whose attitude towards the masses is one of contempt. Jacob Joseph's book laid the foundation of Hasidic literature, which differs both in content and form, not only from rabbinical but also from the earlier Kabbalistic literature. In the last decades of the 18th century, Hasidism spread with incredible rapidity among the Jewish masses of Poland and partly even of Lithuania. Numerous communities saw the rise of Hasidic congregations and the establishment of separate houses of prayer in which services characterized by boundless ecstasy, violent shouts and gestures were held in accordance with Beshit's prescriptions. The Hasidim adopted the Kabbalistic prayer book of Ari, which differed from the accepted liturgy by numerous textual alterations and transpositions. They neglected the traditional time limit for morning prayers, changed the ritual of slaughtering animals, and some of them were in the habit of dressing themselves in white on the Sabbath. They were fond of whiling away their time in noisy assemblies and frequently indulged in merry drinking bouts to foster, in accordance with Beshit's precept, a cheerful disposition. The most characteristic trait of the Hasidism, however, was their boundless veneration for the holy tzaddiks. Though logically the outcome of Hasidism, in practice tzaddikism was in many cases its forerunner. The appearance of some miracle-working tzaddik in a certain neighborhood frequently resulted in wholesale conversions to Hasidism. The tzaddik's home was overrun by crowds of men and women who in their credulity hoped to obtain a cure for diseases or a remedy for sterility for their women or who asked for a blessing for predictions for the future or sought advice in practical matters. If, in one case out of many, the tzaddik succeeded in helping one of his clients, or if one of his guesses or predictions proved to be correct, his fame as a miracle worker was firmly established, and the population of the neighborhood was sure to be won over to Hasidism. The number of Hasidic partisans grew in proportion to the number of tzaddiks, of whom there were a great many in the last two decades of the 18th century. The most authoritative tzaddiks came from the circle of Bear of Mezerich. Every one of them either laid his own individual impress upon the doctrine preached by him or endeavored to adapt himself to the habits of the population of his district. As a result, the Hasidic doctrine branched out rapidly, falling into different varieties. The principal branches of Hasidism were two, that of Poland and Ukraine, and that of Lithuania and White Russia. The former was represented by Elimelech of Lizno in Galicia, Levi Itzok of Berdichev, Nohum of Chernobyl, and Baruch of Tulchin, a grandson of Beshit. Elimelech of Lizno, who died in 1786, 
carried the doctrine of practical tzaddikism to its radical conclusions. He preached that the first duty of Hasid consists in reverence for the tzaddik. The tzaddik is a middleman between Israel and God. Through his intercession, God bestows upon the faithful all earthly blessings, life, children, and sustenance. If the tzaddik wills otherwise, the flow of blessings is stopped. The Hasid is therefore obliged to have a blind faith in the tzaddik, to look upon him as his benefactor, and to give him of his means. The tzaddik should be supported by donations in cash and in kind, so that he may devote himself wholly to the service of God and thereby prove a blessing to mankind. This commercial theory of an exchange of services accomplished its purpose. The people brought their last pennies to the tzaddik, and the tzaddik, in turn, was indefatigable in bestowing blessings, pouring forth divine favors upon earth, healing the creepers, curing the sterility of women, and so on. The profitable calling of tzaddik became hereditary, passing from father to son and grandson. Everywhere petty dynasties of tzaddik sprang up, which multiplied rapidly and endeavored to wrest the supremacy from one another. Such was the fate of the cult of righteous taught by Beshit, which now assumed gross materialistic forms. It's fair to add, however, that not everywhere did tzaddikism sink to such low depths. There were tzaddiks who were idealists, lovers of mankind, and saintly men, however strange the forms in which these virtues often manifested themselves. One of these men, to quote one instance, was Levi Itzok of Berdichev, who in his youth had been cruelly persecuted by the Lithuanian rabbis for his devotion to Hasidism. Towards the end of the 18th century, he settled in Berdichev as Tzaddik and became tremendously popular in his new calling on account of his saintly life and his fatherly love for the common people. Speaking generally, however, the Ukrainian, Podolian, and Galician tzaddiks had one tendency in common, that of inculcating in their followers a blind faith in the truth of Hasidism and shunning all speculation as injurious to religious sentiment. The development of Hasidism in Lithuania and White Russia was altogether different. Whereas in the South, Hasidism captured entire communities at one stroke, meeting with feeble resistance from the dry-as-dust representatives of Rabbinism. In the North, it was forced to engage in a bitter struggle for existence with powerful Rabbinism as represented by the Kahal organization. At the same time, it received a special coloring there. The Hasidism of Beshit having been carried to the north by the disciples of Beo of Mezerich, Aaron of Kalin, Mender of Vitebsk, and Zalman of Ladi, could not help absorbing many elements of the dominant doctrine of Rabbinism. The principal exponent of this new teaching in the north, Zalman Shneozon, died 1813 of Lozno and later of Ladi, both in the government of Mogilev, succeeded in creating a remarkable system of thought 
which may well be designated as rational Hasidism. He summed up his theory in the words, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. While, in the main, adopting the doctrine of Beshit, Zalman injected into it the method of religious and philosophic investigation. Speculation in matters of faith within certain limits, of course, was, in his opinion, not only permissible but even obligatory. He demanded that the tzaddik be not a miracle worker but a religious teacher. He purged Hasidism of numerous vulgar superstitions, robbing it at the same time of the childlike naivety which characterized the original doctrine of Beshit. Zalman's own theory was adapted to the comparatively high intellectual level of the Jewish population in the Northwest. In the South, it was never able to gain adherence. 7. Rabbinism, Hasidism, and the Forerunners of Enlightenment Rabbinism had long been scenting a dangerous enemy in Hasidism. The principle proclaimed by Beshit that man is saved by faith and not by religious knowledge was in violent contradiction with the fundamental dogma of Rabbinism which measured the religious worth of a man by the extent of his Talmudic learning. The rabbi looked upon the tzaddik as a dangerous rival, as a new type of popular priest, who, feeding on the superstition of the masses, rapidly gained their confidence. The lower Jewish classes abandoned the uninspiring Talmudist, whose subtleties they failed to comprehend, and flocked to the miracle-working tzaddik, who offered them not only his practical advice, but also his blessing, thus saving soul and body at one and the same time. However, completely defeated by Hasidism in the south, Rabbinism still reigned supreme in the north, and finally declared war of extermination against its rival. During the period under discussion, in the latter part of the 18th century, the leader of the Lithuanian rabbis was Elijah of Vilna, 1720-1797, who received the ancient high-sounding title of Geon. He was the incarnation of that power of intellect, which was the product of subtle Talmudic reasoning. Early in his childhood, Elijah displayed phenomenal ability. At the age of six, he managed to read the Talmudic text without the aid of a teacher. At the age of ten, he participated in difficult Talmudic discussions, amazing old rabbis by his erudition. His mind rapidly absorbed everything that came within his range. Elijah was familiar with the Kabbalah and incidentally picked up enough of mathematics, astronomy, and physics to be able to follow certain discussions in the Talmud. He lived in Vilna as recluse, leading the life of an ascet and burying himself entirely in his books. He took little nourishment, slept two hours a day, rarely conversed about secular affairs, his contact with the outside world being practically limited to the Talmudic lectures, which he delivered before his pupils. Elijah avoided the method of pilpul, which was meant to exercise the mind by inventing artificial contradictions in the Talmudic text, 
and subsequently removing them. Knowing by heart almost the entire Talmudic and rabbinic literature, he had no difficulty in solving the most complicated questions of Jewish law, and, guided by subtle critical observations, occasionally allowed himself to amend the text of the Talmud. Elijah Gaon wrote commentaries and all sorts of annotations to biblical, Talmudic, and Kabbalistic books, but his style was, as a rule, careless, consisting of hints, references, and abbreviations, intelligible only to the learned reader. In his spare moments, he occasionally wrote about Hebrew grammar and mathematical sciences. Rabbinical learning was his native element, embodying for him the whole meaning of religion. In questions of religious ceremonialism, he was a rigorist, adding here and there new restrictions to the multifarious injunctions of Shulan Aruk. He was the idol of all the learned rabbis of Lithuania and other countries, but the masses understood him as little as he understood them. A spiritual aristocrat, he was bound to condemn severely the plebeian doctrine of Hasidism. The latter offended in him equally the learned Talmudist, the rigorous ascet, and the strict guardian of ceremonial Judaism, of which certain minutiae had been modified by the Hasidim after their own fashion. As far back as 1772, when the first Hasidic societies were secretly organized in Lithuania, and several of their leaders were discovered in Vilna, the rabbinical Kahal court of that city pronounced, with the permission of Eliza Geon, the harem against the sectarians. From Vilna, circulars were sent out to the rabbis of other communities, calling upon them to wage war against the godless sect. In many towns of Lithuania, the Hasidim became the object of persecution. The rabbis of Galicia, having been forewarned from Vilna, followed the suit, and at a meeting held in Brody during the local fair, issued a most rigorous harem against every Jew following the Hasidic liturgy, dressing in white on Saturdays and holidays, and in general participating in the conventicles of Hasidim. We have already had occasion to refer to the work of the Hasidic apostle Jacob Joseph Cohen, Toldot Jacob Yosef, which for the first time reproduced the sayings of Beshit and by way of comment indulged in attacks upon the scholastic pseudo-wisdom of the rabbis. Cohen's work, which appeared in 1780, once more stirred the rabbinical world. From Vilna, the signal was given for a new campaign against the Hasidim. The rabbis of Lithuania, assembling in 1781 at the fair of Zelva, in the government of Grodno, issued appeals to all Jewish communities demanding the severest possible penalties for the dishonorable followers of Beshit, the destroyer of Israel. All Orthodox Jews were called upon to ostracize the Hasidim socially, to regard them as infidels, to shun all contacts and avoid intermarriage with them, and to refrain from burying their dead. The opponents of Hasidim called themselves Mitnabdim, Protestants, and persecuted them everywhere as dangerous schematics. 
The formation of important Hasidic societies in White Russia under the leadership of Zalman's near zone increased the agitation of Mitnakdim. At the rabbinical conferences held in Mogilev and Shuklov, severe measures were adopted against the Hasidim, and their leader was proclaimed a heretic. In vain did Zalman defend himself and, in his epistles to rabbis, demonstrate his orthodoxy. In vain did he travel to Vilna to obtain a personal interview with Eliza Gaon and remove the stain of heresy from himself and his followers. The stern Gaon refused even to see the exponent of heterodoxy. At the very end of the 18th century, the strife of parties in Russian Jewry became more and more accentuated and finally led, as we shall see later, to the interference of the Russian government. While warring with one another, Rabbinism and Hasidism found a point of contact in their common hatred of the New Enlightenment, which proceeded from the Mendelssohn circle in Berlin. If Rabbinism opposed secular knowledge actively, looking upon it as a competitor who contested its own spiritual monopoly, Hasidism opposed it passively with its whole being prompted by an irresistible leaning towards mental drowsiness and pious fraud. Hasidism and its inseparable companion, Tzadikism, the product of a mystical outlook on life, were powerless against cold logical reasoning. It stands to reason that the Tzadiks were even more hostile toward secular learning than the rabbis. True, Rabbinism had immersed the Jewish mind in the stagnant waters of scholasticism. But Hasidism, in its further development, endeavored altogether to lull rational thinking to sleep and to cultivate, to an excessive degree, the religious imagination at its expense. The new cultural movement which had arisen among the Jews of Germany had no chance of penetrating into this dark realm, which was guarded on the one hand by scholasticism and on the other by mysticism. The few isolated individuals in Polish Jewry who manifested a leaning toward secular culture were forced to go abroad, primarily to Berlin. One of these rare fugitives from the realm of darkness was Solomon Maimon, 1754-1800. He was born the son of a village arenda in Lithuania, near Nezviz, in the government of Minsk, where he received a Talmudic education and where, having scarcely reached the age of twelve, he was married off by his old-fashioned parents. However, unlike thousands of other Jewish lads, he managed to escape spiritual death in the mire of everyday life. Endowed with the searching mind, Solomon Maimon was driven constantly onward in his mental development. From the Talmud he passed to the Kabbalah, in which at one time he was completely absorbed. From the Kabbalah he made a certain leap to the religious philosophy of Maimonides and other medieval Jewish rationalists. His useful intellect was eager for new impressions, and these his immediate surroundings failed to give him. In 1777, Maimon left home and family and went to Germany to acquire secular culture. He found himself first in Königsberg and then proceeded to Berlin, Posen, Hamburg, and Breslau 
enduring all kinds of suffering and tasting to the full the bitterness of a wondrous life in a strange land. In Berlin, he came in contact with Mendelssohn and his circle, rapidly acquired a knowledge of German literature and science, and made a deep study of philosophy, particularly of the system of Kant. The sudden transition from rabbinic scholasticism to the critical philosophy of Germany, and from the primitive existence of a Ruthenian Jew to the free life of an educated European, destroyed Maimon's mental equilibrium. He fell a prey to skepticism and unbelief, denying the foundations of all religion and morality, and led a disorderly life which made his best friend turn from him. In his philosophic criticism, Maimon went much further than Kant. In 1790, he published in German a tentative investigation of transcendental philosophy, and this book was followed by a number of writings dealing with metaphysics and logic. Kant, on reading his first book, made the remark, No one among my opponents has grasped the essence of my system as profoundly as my own, nor are there altogether many men endowed with so refined and penetrating a mind in questions so abstract and complex. In 1792, Solomon Maimon published his autobiography, Lebensgeschichte, a remarkable book in which he vividly describes the conditions of life and the ideas prevalent among Polish Lithuanian Jews, as well as his own sad odyssey. The autobiography made a profound impression upon educated Christians, among others on Goethe and Schiller. The last years of his life, Maimon spent in Silesia on the estate of his friend Count Kalkreut, where he continued his philosophic studies. He died in 1800 and was buried in Glogau. During the last years of his life, Maimon was completely estranged from Judaism. He contributed next to nothing to the enlightenment of his fellow Jews, the only work written by him in Hebrew being an uncompleted commentary of Maimonides' guide on the perplexed. Having escaped the realm of darkness, he no more returned thither, nor perhaps was he able to do so without risking the same fate as Uriel Acosta. The time for cultural rejuvenation had not yet arrived for the Jews of Poland and Lithuania. Least of all could such a rejuvenation have been stimulated by the change in the external political situation. The transfer of the bulk of the Jewish population from the power of disintegrating Poland to that of Russia, a country even less civilized and built upon the foundations of autocracy and serfdom. End of section 14